Hello and welcome to the next instalment of the Tales from Harriet's podcast. I'm your host, Jack Pentland, your Harrieter president and former pupil of the class of 1997. Today, we look back at the trials and tribulations of World War I, recollecting real accounts from former pupils who fought in Gallipoli in 1915. Over 2,600 staff and former pupils of the Harriet's community fought in World War I. During the war, the school lost men in all the major conflicts at sea and on land. Over 460 Harrieters died on service, including 46 during the Gallipoli campaign. Gallipoli, or the Dardanelles campaign as it was known, started at dawn on the 25th of April 1915, as Allied troops landed on the Gallipoli Peninsula in Ottoman Turkey. The Gallipoli campaign was a land-based element of a strategy intended to allow Allied ships to pass through the Dardanelles, capture Constantinople, now Istanbul, and then knock Ottoman Turkey out of the war. General Sir Ian Hamilton decided to make two landings, the British at Cape Helles and the Anzacs north of Gabatepe in an area later dubbed Anzac Cove. Both landings were quickly contained by Ottoman troops and neither the British nor the Anzacs were able to advance. Trench warfare quickly took hold at Gallipoli, mirroring the fighting at the Western Front. At Anzac Cove it was particularly intensive. Casualties in both locations mounted heavily, and in the summer heat conditions rapidly deteriorated. Sickness was rampant, food quickly became inedible, and there were vast swarms of black corpse flies. Finally, in December 1915, it was decided to evacuate first Anzac and Suvla, followed by Hellas in January 1916. The following are letters written by former pupils who served at Gallipoli, Lieutenant Thomas Burt of the 13th Royal Scots and Lieutenant Dodds Munro of the Lovett Scouts. The Gallipoli evacuation, letter from 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Burt, SS Goshen, Tuesday the 11th of January 1916. My dearest mother, no doubt you will all be wondering why I have not written for such a time, but I suppose you would understand when you heard of the evacuation. We were up in the trenches for 16 days before we left, and the mails were stopped of course. I have not had a letter from you since the one dated November 23rd. I expect there will be a huge mail waiting for me when we get to Alexandria. We were to have about a month or two's rest and then onwards. The evacuation was rippingly carried out. The night before we shifted down to Esky Lines in Reserve. Then, on Saturday the 8th, we assembled at the rest camp and marched in parties of 400 to the beach as soon as it was dark. I'd been on the, night, on the beach the night before from 7 till 1am with a party shifting kits etc and had rather an exciting time. Asia sent over a couple of shells almost every 10 minutes, and one came from Akibaba about every 15 minutes. Although I had a party of 100 men working, we didn't have a casualty. On the Saturday night, we got three shells over from Asia just as we were embarking, and although very close, they did no, no damage to us. We embarked on a lighter, which took us to a larger boat, which in turn conveyed us to Mudros. We got there by Sunday forenoon and changed to the Scotian, an Allen liner, and quite like the boat I came out in. The last party to leave the firing line got off all right, 
and after they were all gone, our mounds, etc., went off, and if any of the Turks were following, they would have had rather a tough time. On the Friday afternoon, they shelled us rather badly, and at about four o'clock, the German officers tried to make the Turkish soldiers go over the top. Some responded and were immediately repulsed with heavy loss, but the majority thought better of it. At present, I'm in the pink of condition, and until two days ago was very much alive in all senses of the word, although if we had to stay much longer, I should require to chain myself to something. The evacuation at Suvla Bay. We have had the privilege of seeing a letter from Dodds Monroe of the Lovett Scouts, written to his mother. It contains some very interesting information with regard to the Suvla Bay evacuation, as the following quotations will show. On the 13th of December, all our men who were suffering from sore feet, etc., were sent off, and we were informed that no more rations would be landed for us. So it was a case of bully and biscuits three times a day. On the 14th, more men went off, and my chum, who had slept with me since we'd landed, was killed by a stray bullet. On the 15th, more men left, and our strength was reduced to 50 out of 142. On the 17th, our strength was further reduced to 40, and the Turks started to bomb our firing line and continued all day and night. One crawled up in the dark. One crawled up in the dark to about 25 yards from our trenches and fired a shot at us. Needless to say, that was his last shot. On Saturday, the 18th, iron or emergency rations were issued, and we knew the end was pretty near. That night, our strength was reduced to 24. I was asked if I would wait till the very end at the signal station to send a message to the beach when the last had left, and of course I agreed. Sunday the 19th was the last day fixed for the evacuation. The main body left at 6pm and each squadron left eight men to hold the firing line till 1.30am. We kept the usual fires burning, everything being left as if it were still there. All the spare ammunition was burned, as well as everything that could be of service to the enemy. Waterproof sheets were cut, Wellington boots destroyed, bully, biscuits, milk, tea, etc. were all rendered unfit for consumption. Our front was all covered with barbed wire and mines, as was the whole of the Suvla area, there being only one road to the beach. About 8 o'clock, I was told that I not, need not wait any longer, as a message would be sent from the extreme end of the line as they passed. So I disconnected my instrument, packed my kit, and started from the beach, five miles away. Never in my life did I put in such an eerie two hours as on that solitary journey. Everything was going on as if nothing particular had happened, and our rear guard kept firing away as if the whole British army was backing them up. As I walked down a long line of trenches, I gradually got out of the rifle fire. By and by, I reached the Anzac Road and continued from there in the open to the beach. On the way, I passed a cemetery, and my very heart sobbed at the thought of all those poor fellows lying there. Such a sacrifice of human life and absolutely nothing to show for it. I reached Sea Beach, got on, a board, got on board a lighter and was taken out to a larger boat, the Snaefell. We left Suvla about 12 o'clock and landed at Imbros at 1. In Imbros Bay was the Ben Matree. We landed on lighters and started off to find our camp. We walked and walked and we thought our walk would never end. We were in the condition of the exhausted British soldier carrying his back 
and is parked along the wayside in France who replies to the greeting of the French boy's call of souvenir? Yes, here, take a lot. I would willingly have given up my pack that night, bar one item, my signaling flags, which I still have. We reached camp at last and had served out to us tea, bread, cheese and bully. Then we lay down and slept the sleep of the just. On the morrow we got a good wash and after breakfast went to the shops and with any money we had bought peak Friens biscuits or tinned salmon etc just to make certain that we were again within the pale of civilization. On Tuesday the 21st we were inspected by the general who told us we were going to Egypt in a day or two. And sure enough on Thursday we started and got onto lighters to take us out to the big boat. The sea however was so rough that we could not get alongside. We succeeded at the third attempt but found that the big boat had run aground so we had to return to the shore which we did with great difficulty as it was very stormy. Next day we made another attempt to get aboard the boat which had now refloated. This time we succeeded but we barely escaped being swamped. We then proceeded to Lemnos and boarded the Scotian, an Allen liner, at 1am on Christmas Day. We got a mail that night, but we shall not get the rest of the letters and parcels till we arrive in Egypt. I cannot but admire the splendid way in which the evacuation was carried out. Not a single casualty occurred and every man was as cool as a cucumber. The officer in charge of the arrangements should get the VC. It came off so well that Johnny Turk did not, did not know we were off and never fired a single shell at us. One of our officers invented an arrangement for firing detonators. This was kept up till dawn with all the appearance of rifle firing. Everything was done to perfection and the result was better than anyone expected. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the Tales from Harriet's podcast. Paying homage to the former pupils who served in such a crucial campaign is a constant reminder for us to be grateful to those who fought for our freedom decades ago. Please join us next time as we delve further into the Harriet's archives and look back at recollections of the Serbian boys at Harriet's in World War II, recalling what life was like for them at that time.